0: Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for Drug Science. Uh, Hello and welcome to another uh, Drug Science Podcast. This is me, David Nutt, and today uh, we have Mike Jay uh, with us. Mike is an author, and we're calling him a cultural historian. But to you, uh, he's probably best known as the man who put together the remarkable exhibition at the Welcome Centre called High Society, and also subsequently one on Bedlam, A History of Madness. And he's here today to talk about those, but also about his new book, which is called Mescaline, A Global History of the First Psychedelic. So welcome, Mike. Thanks, David. Pleasure to be here. Nice to see you again. Last time I bumped into you, I was on a tube and you came and sat next to me and reminded me who you were. (laughs) That's right,
1: yeah. And we had a very good discussion about um, sort of uh, endogenous depression for a couple of
0: uh, tube stops. We did, that's right, yes. So, guess about your background. Tell us why you got interested in this whole issue of of drugs and the mind and psychedelics.
1: Well, I guess um, I was a cultural historian is quite polite, I'm really just a freelance writer and uh, I started writing about drugs way back when, um, you know, in the 90s because nobody else was. They were a huge cultural phenomenon at that time and uh, uh, there was a bit of a conspiracy of silence about them and uh, I was an early adopter on the internet so I started writing stuff about drug culture on the internet and everybody at that time said, oh, you're mad, you're going to get arrested, the police will put your name on a list and... From doing that I sort of became the drugs guy and then I got interested in the history and realised that they weren't all invented by hippies in the 60s and that actually all these um, substances had been around for a long time and had fascinating cultural histories as you might say and I spent a long time since then just uh, delving into them and researching
0: and telling their stories. How easy was it to get the Wellcome Trust to... uh... Come up with the funding to actually put on a spectacular exhibition of the the history of a range of different drugs. They had thought about drugs as a
1: topic at that point, uh, and I'd written a few books on the history of drugs by then. And so they approached me and said, "Well, if we did something about drugs, then how would we do it?" And I said, "Well, just do it like you would do anything else. You know, ask the questions. You know, what are these things? How do people use them? How did they come into our culture? Or investigate them." Like like you investigate anything else with a medical dimension and they said fine and I said well, I should warn you if you do that it's going to come out looking very very different from all the other kind of mainstream presentations of drugs because everybody else seems to have to go for this moral propagandist tone and you know I don't think we need to do that I think we can just take the subject on its merits and they said fine and to give them credit they held their nerve and it came out exactly as I'd envisaged so yeah, it's it was great.
0: remarkable I remember it I remember Around it. I think I may have even spoken at one of the events and uh, it was fascinating how people's eyes were opened because for so many people all they hear about in relation to drugs is bad things and dangers and hostility and negativity and then you hear you are showing drugs as not just part of society but part of culture as well as having huge medical implications as well. And You did begin a, a kind of debate and a public discussion which I think has gone on subsequently and actually it was one of the sort of landmark points in changing the public discourse course on drugs from something you shouldn't say its name to. Isn't that interesting? I think that's
1: right. There have been lots of moments like that, but all props to the welcome for being brave and doing that early on. Because I think, as you say, as well as people hearing nothing but bad things and cautions and drugs is all taken to be part of criminology and sort of psychopathology. And uh, along with that, there are an enormous number of people who've had experiences with drugs that are very different. And I think for them to see that reflected back and to understand that, you know, all the way back through history and particularly through science and medicine people have been very interested in the effects of these drugs and that they've been a part of our culture for a long time i think it made a lot of people feel that they weren't such outsiders and deviants
0: yeah of course that's that's an important issue a lot of people use drugs and they know they're not deviant but they're not allowed to talk about it because in some certainly in our culture there's still a lot of stigma about that and and i'm interested in you as a as a historian um What do you see as the sort of the underpinning hatred or fear of drugs? What have been these drivers to trying to marginalize them, trying to suppress them? I think people are always looking for dividing lines between
1: us and them, between sort of in groups and out groups. And I think you can um, see the way that the drug debate has been a very, very useful tool for this for a long time. And I would go back to um, the arrival of the very first new drug in Western culture, really, which was tobacco. And immediately you had a lot of people, including doctors, saying, you know, this is a marvelous new medicine and this is a wonderful, great sort of, you know, and then it became more broadly social and desirable, and you also had people like Armonic, James I, saying how terrible it was. And I think once you've got something like tobacco and particularly a strange new habit like smoking there's a very obvious dividing line between the people who do it and the people who don't and I think this has been the same with every other drug ever since and if you look at other non-western cultures we say oh they've never had drug prohibitions and they haven't because they haven't had to, it's obvious that uh, if you're in a certain culture you don't even think about your drugs as drugs, they're transparent just as you know a cup of tea or a glass of Chardonnay is to us we don't call that a drug I remember being very struck talking to uh, an anthropologist who spent a lot of time in the Amazon with the Tocano people and who were people who uh, drink ayahuasca and they chew coca leaf and a lot of what we'd call drugs. And he said to them, do you know what the word drugs means? And they said, oh, yes, drugs, yeah, very, very bad. That's the sort of thing that people in the cities do, cocaine, (laughs) and all very dangerous, you know. So I think we only really use the word drugs when we're talking about something that's a little bit foreign. And I think that's really at the root of how people who don't use drugs try
0: and um, make people who do seem different and deviant. And um, But also, this, it seems to me, certainly in terms of the last 30, 40 years of UK and American, in many ways Western culture, drugs and the fear of drugs has been used as a political tool in order to to get people to vote for parties that want more control, you know, the the sort of more more right-wing kind of approach. Would you accept that?
1: Oh, I think it's much easier for politicians to stand up and say drugs are evil and we will never give in to them. It's much easier to do that than it is to look at what the problem's really about. If you look at the beginning of drug prohibition, as I have done, you know, the years around, 1900. It's very clear, you know, there's an awful lot of sort of very overt stuff about the degenerate habits of inferior races. And it's very clear that that was part of it. I think in a funny way, the drug laws don't work like that anymore. They used to be 100 years ago, they were a very effective way of kind of identifying people who were um, marginal or deviant or undesirable. And I remember thinking that when the war on terror started, that actually that works much better in the 21st century than the war on drugs. You know, if you're trying to identify the people who you think are a threat, there's no real point in trying to identify drug users anymore, because drug users are broadly everybody.
0: (laughs) Yes, that is true. You've done a lot of thinking and writing about this tremendous explosion of cultural change and I would argue, maybe I don't know if you'd agree or not, but the 1960s and the, the, the rise of psychedelics in the 1960s was probably one of the great turning points in the history of culture and it changed music, it changed art it changed politics And I I often say that LSD is the only drug to have been banned because it changed the way people voted.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was part of a broader complex of things, which included feminism and civil rights, and drugs were present in all of those movements and and vice versa. But I think it's that generation who grew up then, sort of post-war generation. I think they were the sort of first truly global... Consumers and they'd come out of this world that was a sort of consumer monoculture, really. You know, those of us old enough kind of remember that from our childhoods. And suddenly it was like, well, alcohol's not the only intoxicant. You know, my friend was um, hitchhiking with a lorry driver who gave him some amphetamines and my other friend was in uh, Morocco and he smoked some of this hashish and then, you know, I heard somebody from in Mexico there were these magic mushrooms, you know, and uh, so it's the beginning of a kind of global culture where people's identity and their self-worth became associated with, you know, being brave and trying new things and so it was part of a huge generational shift and I think an important part of it.
0: And, of course, governments tried to put the genie back in the bottle. I mean, they failed it in in terms of recreational use, but, of course, one of the big downsides of the government's uh, repression of, of that culture was that the opportunities of these drugs in terms of therapies and new therapies was extraordinarily censored. So, you know, we've had 40 or 50 years where there's been almost no utilisation of them in medicine. No, that's right. And coming out of a period where back in the
1: 1950s, as it had been all through the history of Western science, if you were interested in mind-altering drugs and what they did... Scientists used to take them themselves, and Didn't that you? was true from the early days of the Royal Society all yes. the way through our great heroes of science like Humphrey Davy to um, you know people like Albert Hoffman. So oh, wow. we went straight from this very freewheeling, by modern standards, way of approaching the science of drugs through you know immediately into a kind of complete moratorium and shutdown.
0: Yes, I think uh, for those of you who don't know who Humphrey Davy is, he was—he's uh, a great hero of mine. He was a Bristolian, which is one a good thing because I am. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, He was one of the great inventors of discoverers of chemistry and along with Priestley he discovered nitrous oxide and he wrote about its intoxicating effects and its pleasurable effects and he used it to understand consciousness in himself and many other great scientists at the time and that was in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And he'd be amazed to think that now we're locking people up... (laughs) under the Psychoactive Substances Act, because they use nitrous oxide. I mean, it's it's an absurd conversion from sort of sensible, rational thinking to prohibition.
1: Yes, absolutely. Now, that was the great Enlightenment motto was dare to know. You know, if you want to find something out, then do it yourself. And, uh, you know, experiment and experience is is where we start science.
0: Yes, it's uh, clearly we've written of, well, I think we now have the most repressive drug laws in the world in terms of the Psychoactive Substances Act, which basically says if you use a drug to change your mind, whether it's stimulate or depress your brain, it's illegal. And the only exceptions are alcohol, tobacco and caffeine, which... They have their merits, but there are certainly drugs with much more interesting and potentially more useful attributes. Hasn't, well, you've f- dared to um, raise all sorts of science and historical and anthropological and artistic attitudes to a range of different drugs, Mike. But uh, your new book is called Mescaline a global history of the first psychedelic. So, so tell us a little bit about why you decided to resurrect this old cactus drug. Well, it's fascinating in terms of psychedelics, because
1: that's the story that we think of starting in the 1950s or 1960s. But in fact, mescaline, the major psychedelic that was synthesized 100 years ago, back in 1919. So there's a long, long history and wonderful literature from scientists and artists and um, people exploring it in all kinds of different ways. And then, before that as you say it's found in nature in uh, two families of cacti uh, the peyote cactus in Mexico and the San Pedro in the Andes, and its indigenous use in both cases goes back thousands of years, and in both cases it's still used today. So it's a wonderful way of putting the subject of psychedelics in the broadest possible context, You know, looking, having a big panoramic view through history and mm-hmm. a- across cultures and looking at all the different ways in which people have conceived and used psychedelics.
0: So mescaline is to the, the desert, uh, living peoples, what ayahuasca is to those who live in the jungle. So in the desert, you get a cacti and, and that's mescaline. And in the, in the jungle, you get ayahuasca, which is obviously a combination of two plants. It produces DMT. Would that be a fair thing to say?
1: That's right. There are two different histories, really, of mescaline containing cacti. There's the, um, San Pedro, which, grows all across the Andes Mm -hmm. and is used a bit in the jungle, on that jungle side, but it's really sort of the mountains and the coast and then there's the peyote, which is indigenous to Mexico and a tiny little bit of Texas, what's Uh what's now Texas, and that's got a fascinating history which goes back in written form to the arrival of the Spanish in Mexico mm-hmm. and has a, a chapter that's really central to me in this story was its adoption by the um, Southern Plains tribes in mm-hmm. the United States and mm-hmm. who adopted it for what became the sacrament of the Native American mm-hmm. Church. And that's an
0: amazing movement that's still going on. And they've got permission to use it, uh, even though it's a, an illegal drug in the States, on the grounds that it, they use it for religious purposes, that's
1: right. Yes, it's been very, very long contested. What's interesting is that it's not something that they've always used, you know, because it doesn't grow in the sort of, in the American West, in the Plains. It was only once they were enforced captivity on the reservations and once the Texas Railroad was up and running in the 1880s that it started to make its way up there. So it was then adopted, in a, I think of fascinating and very original way as the formation for a new religion then a hundred years ago they very cannily, incorporated that officially as the Native American church protecting it under the First Amendment. And it was also, that world was how it first came to the West because it was doctors and ethnographers first encountering um, peyote ceremonies there who brought the peyote back to um, the East Coast and uh, it was first um, experimented with by, you know, famous scientists like Weir Mitchell and Havelock Ellis and so that's the beginning of our Western engagement with it too.
0: So, so the, the Plains Indians were they were pushed into these rather barren lands in the south because the settlers wanted to, the quality land for their their wheat and uh, and cows. And then the Indians there looked to find some way of making better of this horrible situation where they were basically excluded to, to, to the desert, and they found the, the cactus. Yes, that came via the ghost
1: dance, which was this very convulsive messianic episode in 1880 when um, all through the reservations um, people became possessed through kind of long sort of day and night kind of dances and trances mm-hmm. and uh, the conviction that a messiah was going to... Uh-huh. arrive um, and it was after that well that was the that was wounded knee you know when yeah. uh, you know dozens of unarmed Indians were shot for participating in the ghost dance, right. and after that there was quite a lockdown. On the reservations, no singing allowed, no dancing allowed, really? okay. and that was the con- that was the point at which peyote emerged. And this ceremony in a teepee happened because that was really about um, doing something secretly under the cover of darkness that you know the missionaries and the federal authorities weren't aware was going on. And that was the beginning of this extraordinary ritual, which is a way of keeping Indian culture alive, surrounded by this hostile white majority culture. When you were in the with your peyote you could create this world in which the old magic still worked and that, that's the ceremony that's fairly unchanged um, to this day it's an amazing thing I, I participated in one in Oklahoma and it uh, informed a lot of my writing and thinking about it.
0: Well that's actually uh, that's a wonderful story and uh, we have to be grateful to them that they got those insights and have, um, have worked so hard to make Sure, it, you know, they didn't succumb to the prohibition that all you know, other psychedelics have subsequently come under.
1: Yeah, it really was an existential issue from them because at that point, you know, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, their policy was assimilation. They were saying, mm. well, we don't have to have a policy for Indians because there aren't going to be any Indians because yeah. all their children are going to go off to schools where they have to speak English and mm. Indians are just going to be Americans. They're not mm. going to have their own culture. Yeah. You know, The peyote ceremony was very, very important at that point in keeping that culture okay. alive, presenting it as an official church. Mm. You know and it was only with um, Roosevelt and the New Deal in the 1930s that the federal policy towards Indians changed, and the American government said, "Well, they should be allowed to worship however they want. It kept Indian culture alive and it shaped yeah. it and uh, it's still a very, very important force in it today fantastic
0: but if you go back to pre Spanish invasion mm-hmm. so we, as far as we know that uh, mescaline was being used before then? Definitely in terms of the
1: peyote in Mexico there are archaeological finds but in the Andes with the San Pedro there's a 3,000 year old fantastic carving of a shaman transforming into a jaguar and clutching a San Pedro cactus which shows that that was big part of that uh, amazing complex in South America. We keep on finding more examples of bodies with medicine pouches with uh, you know the components of ayahuasca and coca leaves and tobacco so Uh, mescaline was part of that um, sacred plant complex
0: way Mm -hmm. back in prehistory we'll get back to the interview in just a second i just want to thank all the drug science community members for your continued support without you the dissemination of information like this would not be possible drug science is and always will be independent this means we don't accept sponsorships but by becoming a drug science community member you'll be helping us bring about change You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all drug science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. I remember when I was in uh, the Atacama, the, in the museum there in San Pedro, and I was staggered to discover, I think over half of all the artefacts are about carrying or using psychedelic drugs.
1: Yes, you get those amazing DMT snuff trays and snuff tubes, don't you? And uh, it's funny in so many museums that these are just marked as ritual
0: objects or something.
1: <laughs> you know, they're, uh... Yes,
0: that's right, don't tell the truth, because it might uh, empower people, yeah. So, what are the things have you learned about in your uh, research into mescaline? I mean, did you think it has differences from other psychedelics? Do you think there are aspects of it which we don't understand yet? I think it's very different from the other major psychedelics, you know,
1: LSD and psilocybin and DMT, because those are all tryptamines. Mm-hmm. Mescaline uniquely is a phenethylamine. So yeah, these are
0: quite complicated terms, but we don't need to go further into. <laughs> no,
1: um, it's. Uh, Um, But it does mean that uh, you have to take it in larger doses than the other ones. And it doesn't get through the blood-brain barrier so easily, so it takes good an hour or two to really come on. And when it does, it has a quite pronounced sort of physical effects mm. as well as um, mental and psychological mm. ones. You know, if you look in a sort of pharmacology textbook or on Wikipedia or whatever, mm. it'll um, list the effects and say, well, they're like like other psychedelics. It's very visual, you know, and that is a big component certainly of the Western engagement mm. with uh, mescaline. Is these kaleidoscopic visions that it produces and distortions of time and Mm. space and sort of a feeling of the sacred and but also strong physical sensations sometimes very pleasant people talk about it being very euphoric and Mm -hmm. uh, having a very full head but Mm. also there's usually at least a bit of something a bit like nausea or seasickness Mm. Mm -hmm. um something more adrenergic, we might say. Mm. And all these lists of effects are good as far as they go, but they don't tell you everything about the experience, Mm. I don't think. And you can tell that when you read this literature of, you know, people describing mescaline experiences, which is vast. Some people say it was the most ecstatic Mm. revelatory moment of their lives. Other people say it was, you know, deeply unpleasant, and they'd never go through it again. Mm. And um, so like you know other psychedelics it's very different but i think maybe even more than other psychedelics the context makes a big difference you know if you take it on your own or in a sort of experimental framework um you tend to get very absorbed in the you know your sensorium and all the effects that are going on all the visions that you're seeing often hearing voices and having strange physical sensations and that becomes overwhelming whereas if you take it in a social context or a ceremonial mm. one where there's something going on, all that recedes into the background and you become kind of much more mm. part of a sort of
0: um, mm. collective experience. Well, do you think that's how it was used in the uh, pre-Spanish days? Was it was it used to, for, for collective group experiences, do we know, or was it used to sort of for people just to survive those terrible because I mean being up at 4,000 metres is pretty miserable and cold I I wondered if psychedelics were used to just help people survive
1: Yes there are records and certainly the Spanish records of peyote in Mexico, there are records of it being used communally and collectively, so whole village typically around a fire, typically Uh at night, you know the shaman handing around peyote buttons and everybody taking them and singing and dancing but there's also another type of use that you find um, you still find it in Peru and Ecuador and San Pedro shamanism today. And it's also recorded by the Spanish in in Mexico with peyote, which is more like a sort of one-on-one thing, a sort of curandero where you'll have somebody who's a, a specialist mm. and who works with it and um, someone will go and see them either because they're sick and they want to be cured or because they have a problem They think somebody's cursed them maybe or they want to know how somebody in a distant place is doing. It's a ceremony in which usually both participants take quite a small amount of it and through ritual and prayer and the the effects of the masculine creator, a space in which these kind of questions can be answered Mm -hmm. and people can be um, fixed and repaired and put right.
0: Would that be sort of more akin to this kind of modern concept of microdosing? mushrooms versus macro dosing is that is it sort of a lower dose to allow you to facilitate thinking and a higher dose to transport you
1: uh, it's usually with san pedro you have to sort of boil it up and produce a quite slimy bitter drink so it's quite hard to take a very large uh-huh. dose of it but it's um it's at a very nice kind of comfortable level, it's much more than a microdose you're definitely yeah. feeling it having a, but but you, it's, it's yeah. probably less than most western users would regard as a psychedelic dose, yeah. and it's the same in the Native American church um, you know, the peyotes passed around several times it creates a sort of great bonding between mm. everybody who's there and it certainly makes, you know, the fire and all the sort of theatrics of the thing mm. you know, really, really vivid and spectacular, but also you know, everybody's got to be present in the ceremony. There's a drum and a rattle being passed around. People mm-hmm. have got to sing their songs. There's a lot of mm-hmm. ritual, mm-hmm. you know. So it's at a level at which all that can 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 happen. It's not too chaotic.
0: Yeah, and no, I think it's very interesting. As you know, we've done a lot of um, research, particularly brain imaging research on psychedelics, but we we've, we've never studied mescaline. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how easy it would be even to to get it into the country to to do an experiment with. But uh, it, it, it seems to us that there are definitely sort of stepwise impacts of these drugs. And it, very low doses, they they, make, make, they may make you feel somewhat more relaxed and, and more insightful. And then at higher doses, perhaps more interactive. And then obviously, when you get to the dose where you begin to disrupt traditional sort of neural connectivity and processes, then you get into this into the trip where you begin to sort of change as a. a your sense of self and Mm -hmm. ego begins to dissolve, etc. So we're quite fascinated by how you might optimise the right experience for the right kind of benefit. And it sounds to me like that's been done already with mescaline in the past. It
1: It has. I mean, for decades, mescaline was the only psychedelic that was available. So there's an enormous amount of research on it. And Mm -hmm. it's strange that it's disappeared at this point. I mean, I think that happened really once LSD arrived. Mm. By the 60s, when... Aldous Huxley took his mescaline in doors yeah. of perception and the yeah. term psychedelics was coined. You know, yeah. psychedelics at that point was mescaline and LSD. You know, mm-hmm. they, were yeah. The, yeah. they were the only 2 But by the 60s, people had stopped using mescaline so much. I think probably just because LSD was active at a much, much higher dose... Mm. Um, The old idea had been that, you know, these were things that kind of poisons that flooded the brain and sort Mm. of disturbed your perception. But obviously, with LSD working at tiny microgram doses, Mm. some Mm. specific mechanism was being triggered, so that's what scientists got interested in. And then I think as we've come back to the psychedelic renaissance of the Mm. last 10 years or so, a lot of that's been guided by what's easier to do and substances like Mm. ketamine, for example, which were already, you know, licensed, they're Mm. easy, Mm. you know, because mescaline was around early on, it was prohibited very early on, mm. so all the um, legal controls around it, are, you know, are fairly much set in stone. Mm. And also, you know, because of Alexander Shulgin, you know, who took his first psychedelic trip was with mescaline. I didn't and, know that. And um, then, that, as he said later, that completely confirmed the direction of his life. He couldn't believe that there'd been so little work done on mescaline analogues, and he started his long process
0: of okay. making more phenethylamines, yes. and he made Famously MDMA. The Fikals. The Fikals. Right. means I know and love. Okay. Yeah. That came from mescaline. I hadn't realised that.
1: Yes, yeah. it did. And he was... Uh, and then I think once you've got things like MDMA and 2CB yeah. that are less... Um, so more physically manageable than mescaline, and that oh, the last yeah. three or four hours instead of 12. Well, I think 12 hours. is very, very long oh, acting. Right. So I think, you know, and that's, of course, is a consideration mm-hmm. in clinical trials because, you know, medical professionals don't come cheap. You know, you don't, um, you don't well, want to be doing this for longer than you have to. So I think for logistical reasons, mescaline has fallen out of the mix. But I think, I mean, there's a huge scientific literature on it that's fascinating.
0: It would be very interesting to, for us to study that. We've just finished a DMT imaging study. We have to inject that, and it shows mm-hmm. you know very profound disorganisation similar to what we see with LSD and psilocybin. Mm-hmm. But it might be mescaline is different, and you know, it would be nice to, nice to to get. So, if anyone's listening, you've got some money they want to spend on research on mescaline, will you get in touch with me, please? Because mm-hmm. uh, we would be fascinated to kind of complete the uh, the full hand of brain imaging on these different psychedelics. But anyway, getting back to your book, Mike, you're, we're seeing now this, the rise of mescaline tourism I right here.
1: Well, yes, we are. I mean, if you go to, you know, for the last long little while, you know, San Pedro shamans used to be something that you'd only ever meet on the coast of Peru or Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And back in the 60s, people didn't really know. You know, it was only just being established that these cacti contained, that, that San Pedro contained mescaline and that there was a tradition of kind of... Uh, healing with it and now if you want a San Pedro shaman you can go to um, I don't know Ibiza or Goa or Thailand or California or London it's kind of global oh it's, um, being,
0: it's being exported or, or, or is it synthetic they're using now
1: uh, no it's being people are using San Pedro there's a big difference between uh, I think in, in terms of this between peyote and San Pedro peyote has severe conservation pressures on it. It only grows in this very small bit of um, Texas and Mexico. And the Native American church uses a lot and is growing. There are traditional sort of users like the Wichol people in Mexico who use it. So um, peyote kind of really needs conservation. It's very hard to find an ethical source of it. But San Pedro just grows everywhere up and down the Andes, everywhere from Ecuador down to Peru, Bolivia, Argentina. Grows incredibly fast. In fact, I
0: think I have seen, I've been seeing people growing it in South Africa now.
1: Yes, yes, I've I've seen it in in Australia. I've seen it growing everywhere. So, I think it's different. The traditional use of ayahuasca in the Amazon and ayahuasca tourism in the Amazon are kind of competing with each other. It's sort of a zero sum game. Whereas I think with San Pedro, because it grows so widely, people are still using it in the traditional way on the coast of Peru, but there are not you know, thousands of tourists right. um, going there. Some people who call themselves San Pedro shamans may have a, have a background in that part of the world, others mm-hmm. may not, mm-hmm. but I think it's something that's now become a global phenomenon and I think it doesn't threaten the supply of San Pedro yeah. and it doesn't yeah. threaten traditional more of yeah. uh, San Pedro, so uh, that's one of the reasons it's becoming so so popular and the form in which mescaline is sort of most familiar these days. I mean, what's funny about it is mescaline having been synthesized years ago, um, you know, pure sort of mescaline, you know, the salts, the hydrochlorides, almost vanished. You know, there's no culture around them at all. Everyone's gone back to the cacti.
0: Yeah, I get a lot of uh, emails saying, oh, we shouldn't be using synthetic cytosine in our research. We should go back to the fungi. Mm -hmm. Not least because they contain other substances. You know, there's a concept of the entourage effect in fungi, Mm -hmm. like in cannabis, and maybe maybe in the San Pedro. Maybe there are other things. Definitely. I mean, both the peyote and the San
1: Pedro have around 50 alkaloids in,
0: right.
1: you know, different in sort of different subspecies. So there are certainly entourage effects going on there as well. But in my experience, you know, the real difference is in the context and in the way that you're yeah. taking it more than the sort of precise chemical, chemical yes. makeup.
0: And thinking, of thinking beyond sort of self-experimentation and self-realization, clearly there's growing interest in the use of psychedelics in, in medicine, mm-hmm. for depression, for addiction for pain. I mean, do you, would you see mescaline as being something we should be considering? for?
1: I've been absolutely fascinated to learn about its traditional use, particularly in the Native American church. There's a clinical psychiatrist actually who spent some time out on the navajo reservation sort of working as a psychiatrist with young navajo men with substance use disorders and severe trauma and at the same time being a part of the native american church and he wrote a very good book it's called a different medicine by joseph calabresi explaining why the native american church had so much more to offer in terms of yeah. uh, mental health therapy than yeah. clinical psychiatry did yeah. and i think it's fascinating to look at the way that um, peyote is used in those traditional cultures you know it's very very different from our yeah. clinical model it's usually a collective experience it's yeah. Uh, yeah not a doctor-patient relationship, it's about, you know, somebody's being healed, is kind of, it's mm-hmm. is, is about the whole community being healed, and it's got all kinds of, you know, ways in which that's reinforced, and nice. the effect is given longevity, so I think it's really fascinating to study the way that that works.
0: I mean, yeah, it's interesting you should say that, that there's just the beginnings of the idea that perhaps doing group therapy with psychedelics, particularly groups of people who've been traumatised together, like, like military Yes, I, I, I've come across soldiers who've, with their, you know, their companies have all been. Tra- gone and sought out help together yes is it's that, interesting i've
1: seen that film from shock to awe have yes, you seen yes, that which yes. is uh, which is fascinating you can see exactly how that works and how it's about people oh. sharing the experience mm. and uh, acknowledging mm. it and people discovering that they're not the only people who are suffering from this and knowing that there's oh. a way out and you know how these therapeutic narratives
0: develop and grow you know it's very different from our clinical model what I, I quite think- like about it is the fact that people do be more connected to other things and other people, so you know that, you see that even when you do it scientifically, when yes. Stuck give people psilocybin in a sprain scanner afterwards they are a bit more connected and if you do it so if you could maximise that through some kind of proper guiding and social interaction during, you might actually get much much better kinds of uh, that's experiences right. and, and
1: it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting how the guiding happens you know because we tend to think well you need a psychotherapist to be very empathic and really sort of you know but if you look at the roadmen and shamans and people who do this in traditional cultures they're not that at all they're much more like facilitators they're mm. just just Mm. performing their role so it's about um, bringing people into this narrative and onto this
0: path and onto this journey Mm. and it's just how you establish Mm. the contours of that and lead people through it I know we're coming to the end now but there's one question I really uh, it's always fascinated me it seems to me that those Native American tribes who use peyote Mm -hmm. Are surviving with a much better quality of life, much lower levels of addiction and alcoholism, than the tribes that don't. And is there any attempt to roll out this approach to those other disadvantaged, disenfranchised groups that are, are suffering enormous burdens? And particularly, I'm mean, thinking of the, you know, when you get to Canada, where you've got, mm-hmm. you know, the majority of of those li- people living on the reservations are, are either using drugs or alcohol, and there's enormous amount of social burden mm-hmm. from those.
1: Well, there's quite a lot of Native American church groups in Canada, Are they and have been okay. quite for a while. I mean, I didn't know uh, that. Humphrey uh. Osmond and Abram Hoffa, when they yeah, were doing well, their work up in Saskatchewan,
0: yeah.
1: uh, worked with them. With that, and in fact, they may have got the idea of treating alcoholism with psychedelics from that context. Right. It's always been from the beginning that in the Native American church that Peyote was uh, particularly strong against white man's diseases, and uh, uh. <laughs> uh, which included things like tuberculosis, but also alcoholism was, of course, a white man disease. And uh, they were very much the the sort of moral backbone of the communities. If you're in the Native American church, you don't drink alcohol. You know, that's just the way they are. And they support each other in that. And uh, I think they're role models for the community. And I think there must be analogues for that sort of ways of doing that, you know, within other cultural contexts. And they'd be allowed to
0: do that. Could, Could any tribe say, we're now part of the Native American church?
1: Within registered tribes, um, you can form
0: a chapter of the
1: Native American church and you can then write to one of the three or four legal peyote suppliers down in Texas and say, uh, you know, we have this chapter of this tribe of the Native American church and they'll supply you with your legal peyote. So it's a very strange, slightly precarious sort of jury-rigged form of legalisation and it's been uh, a century of intense legal struggle of people trying to ban it and uh, that's the
0: way it is at the moment. Well, I'm glad it's sustained and uh, hopefully your book will encourage more people to know about it and perhaps to, to roll it out because it, there's a huge need for this kind of uh, protection against the white man's disease. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure.